then. I'm gonna get a quick drink of water and we'll rock and roll. I think more people need to start a podcast with a good drink of water. Dennis, uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the Chillinois podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Que pasa, Mufasa, everybody. How's everybody doing out there? Thanks for having me, Cole. I really appreciate this invitation. Absolutely. You know, it's funny as I thought about saying the same thing to I thought about people will know when they check out your show why I thought about saying that to you. But before I try to uh, describe it myself, why don't I have you introduce yourself and uh, tell us about the awesome project you've got going? Sure. My name is Dennis Walker, originally from San Diego, California. And about two years ago, I started hosting a podcast called Mycopreneur Podcast. And the intent was to kind of map out the landscape of all the different fungi entrepreneurs around the world, of which there are many now, right? So I was very interested in fungi and also the entrepreneurial ecosystem and have been for a long time on both accounts. And it felt natural to merge the two. So I've been hosting, I've been producing podcasts for a number of years now for other people. and. It came time basically for me to feel like I could launch my own project and I just started reaching out to people that I knew because I've been very involved with the psychedelic psychedelic ecosystem for maybe 15 years now. And, you know, I started interviewing journalists and combat veterans and therapists and people talking about psilocybin assisted therapy. And then it just grew from there. And two years later, I never could have imagined where it went. So that's sort of in a nutshell, how I started and how I, how I got to where I am today. Awesome. Yeah. So really quick before we uh, peel the page back, tell people where they can find uh, Micropreneur, the Micropreneur podcast online. Yeah, you can just Google Micropreneur and you can find me. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm active on LinkedIn. It's on Spotify and Apple podcasts. And by no means do I employ best practices. And that's one of the things I'm really a staunch advocate for is just starting before you're ready and going for it and letting it build organically. And to that end, I haven't done any marketing or promo or any kind of you know alignment with an agency or anything like that. And I feel that that's given me a sense of ownership over the podcast that I probably wouldn't have if I had tried to go another route and tap in with an agency or you know align myself with uh, a sponsor or something like that. So it's, some, it's very mycelial level grassroots and it's resonated with a lot of people and we can get into that shortly. So yeah, please check it out and please hit me up. I respond to as many DMs as I can and I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with people. Absolutely. Well, folks, uh, as always, if it makes it easier for you, we will have links uh, to everything Dennis does um, in our podcast description, or at least the things that we know about um, the Micropreneur podcast. So um, yeah, I just have to say that uh, I first became a fan uh, from the content that you produce on Instagram. Um, it's brilliant. And am I wrong in saying that a lot of it, so correct me if I'm wrong, am I wrong in saying that a, a fair amount of it is, is satirical? That's what I love about your approach. Absolutely. That's one of those things that happened accidentally on purpose where a lot of people don't know, but when I started the podcast, it was quite a serious business oriented podcast where I ended up interviewing and continue to interview very, very visible corporate executives from large psychedelics companies that are publicly traded. And 
I've also just been a psychonaut for a long time. So it, this whole overlap between, you know, the suits getting involved and the business angle, I always just took it with a grain of salt. And it was content that I was interested in covering. But once you do enough of these types of episodes and more people reach out to you, over time, I started realizing not enough people had a sense of humor, I consider. Like everybody was very buttoned up, very soberly analyzing and promoting like the next big thing, my company's going to change the world. And there's room for that. Like, I think there's some people doing great work, but I also just would develop this sense of kind of skepticism and uh, a, a healthy sense of humor about the direction that everything was headed. So I made an Instagram reel one day just to kind of promote what I had been feeling. And, and I think I reached a pressure point where I had been to a few conferences and I had you know, done 50 podcasts or so. And I just thought, okay, there's so many of these characters that are unaware or, or they're not very self-aware that for example, you're like a white guy who's running a retreat center in South America and you dress up in all white. Like, yeah, I've, I've definitely met these people, but like there's an element of humor that's that's easily mapped onto that. And satire, I think, comes from having sort of a, a moral component to it, which is something I actually heard uh, somebody else say, and it resonated with me a lot, is that satire isn't just trolling for laughs or like, you know, it's not necessarily the same as stand-up comedy. There's a moral component to it where you're questioning the direction of things, you're questioning ethical considerations, which is obviously a fairly ambiguous area for a lot of people. You know, what exactly are ethics? It's debatable. But uh, when I think of satirists, I think of like Mark Twain is a great one. I think of, uh, of course, The Onion is really good at doing this. And Tom Waits, I consider him a satirist for my own reasons. There's just a lot of these people who are doing great work with social commentary. And especially now as psychedelics enter the mainstream and we sort of have a roadmap with cannabis of seeing how that went, there's just so much room for, for essentially using satire as a lens to understand current events and deconstruct power structures and also just have a good time, right? Like another example, South Park, huge fan of South Park. So I definitely take a page from their playbook when I'm approaching some of the stuff that I'm doing is like, how would, you know, Matt Stone and Trey Parker uh, approach this situation? And I think if you just draw from a lot of different influences like that, you know, people are sending me plot lines every day because the world has just gotten so weird. It's almost unbelievable what's happening. Like somebody just sent me a plot line today. That's a true story where a meme coin or, or somebody who was a meme stock investor who made a hundred million dollars as a 20 year old now has a controlling stake in one of the largest, largest psychedelic companies and is trying to steer their board of directors into a certain way. I'm like, you can't write that. That is absolutely a product of our current time and place that we live in, that you have a 20-year-old meme stock investor making decisions on behalf or trying to pressure a major publicly traded psychedelics company into behaving a certain way. So that's kind of how I see it. It's like you just sort of pay attention and draw little bits from what's going on and then you know, play around until you find a format that resonates with people. And I got very lucky that after I made that first reel, it went viral. And then I realized like, wow, there's an audience for this. There's a market. There's people who want to see more satire and somebody kind of humorously poking at all of this absurdity that's going on in our world today. Um, you know, one of the things that you brought up is, is precisely the reason, uh, I really wanted to sit down with you today, which is you mentioned that, you know, we're looking at how cannabis legalization is 
rolling out. And uh, frankly, we can take a lot of notes um, and, and maybe improve how we roll out the legalization of uh, fungi and, and, you know, other entheogens. Um, before I get to uh, how the suits tend to ruin the culture, which is, I think, something that you're very like in tune with uh, uh, and you poke fun at all the time. I wanted to back up and ask you, first of all, for our audience, please define uh, what a psychonaut is, because I think a lot of people will be very interested and be like, find out that, hey, I'm a psychonaut. Um, and then also, I wanted to peel the page back 15 years when you said you first got it, got started. So first, let's talk, let's what is a psychonaut? And then I want to talk about when you first got into fungi. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, my definition of a psychonaut is someone who has a penchant for altered states and for experimenting on and researching on themselves with various psychotropic fungi and various psychedelic substances. And I went to school and I went to school at the University of San Francisco where I enrolled as a freshman in 2007. So the psychonauts were heavily interwoven into the culture and, and still are of San Francisco and Silicon Valley, the arts and tech scene there. So, you know, I had a little bit of experience predating that as a senior in high school. When I started reading Terrence McKenna, I started reading Arrowhead forums and I had my first handful of psychedelic experiences with psilocybin mushrooms that were very impactful for me at a young age. And I immediately from the get-go saw it I saw it as being something far more comprehensive and with far more potential than just another recreational substance, which quite frankly was how it was treated in my peer group, right? Like you have high school students in Southern California and you dabble in this and you dabble in that. And I saw mushrooms being used very recreationally, right? Being used at parties, being used kind of in group dynamics. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I've certainly done plenty of that, but I, I had read Food of the Gods by Terrence McKenna, which is quite an ambitious psychonaut book, if you will, talking about high dose states and about visionary landscapes. And coming from a background where I had been raised in a very conservative religious capacity, thinking a lot about things like prayer, things like visionary experiences, right? Like heavenly downloads, if you will. All of these things were tropes that I already had thinking about, you know, is there something more than just what we see in our day-to-day -day reality? So when I read Food of the Gods and you start reading about like, this argument that mushrooms and psychoactive substances may have been at the root of a lot of religious experience initially. Of course, I took it to heart and I decided to go for the gusto and do a macrodose. And that was a pivotal experience, a transformative experience in my life. That was when I was preparing to enter college. So then when I entered USF, University of San Francisco, I already had sort of like a a little bit of an entree into that world. And then I was able to accelerate my studies there because I got tapped into groups of old school trippers, right? Like the old deadheads, like John Perry Barlow, who was writing lyrics for the Grateful Dead, was a neighbor uh, at USF, right? And people in uh, the North Bay and Mill Valley and Sausalito who had you know, been associates of Timothy Leary and Allen Ginsberg and Alan Watts. So I kind of dove into that culture while continuing my studies. So as opposed to like, tuning in, turning on and dropping out. I like tuned in, turned on and then stayed the course and you know, graduated with a degree in media studies, which is how I kind of got my bearings for doing the podcast and doing audio and video production. And I lived a very 
straight and narrow life in a lot of ways. Like on one hand, I was kind of an outlaw. I was interested, I was growing mushrooms and I was interested in, in psychedelics. And I, you know, got connected to the whole psychedelic pantheon, if you will, DMT and LSD and these things. But mushrooms always stood out for me because it's something you can cultivate. It's something that you can find all over the world. There's a lot of precedent with it, right? There's like uh, cultures that have been using them ceremonially for many years. So it kind of checked all the boxes for me. And that's essentially how I got going with it. But because it wasn't very kosher, it wasn't very socially acceptable to speak about psychedelics outside of your echo chambers, I never really had a public facing angle to it, right? Like I, this whole thing of being on Instagram and being on social media and doing a podcast is quite new to me, but the conversations and the sort of ethos of what it means to be a psychonaut and how we can integrate these substances into our personal lives and into our work is something that I feel like I've been doing and refining for a very long time. So it just feels like I'm well positioned now that the conversation has shifted that way publicly because I've been having these conversations and experiences and you know learning the hard way how to best integrate these substances in my life for a long time now. So it's uh, it's kind of like deja vu. Now that I go to these conferences and meet all these people, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I've seen these scenarios before. Like I've seen the sort of inflated ego in the psychedelic realm before, right? I've seen the white shaman spiritual guru dispensing advice for free, unsolicited advice before. So a lot of these characters that I'm doing now are just coming out of personal experiences accrued over the years. Gotcha. And so by my account, uh, if I'm wrong, definitely correct me on this, but you've been doing this for at least two years now. Am I right? Two? Yeah. Yeah. Three years? I launched the micropreneur. The first podcast. Yeah. I, I started that podcast in January of 2021 and it felt like a really good time to get in because it still wasn't very socially acceptable to quote, come out of the psychedelic closet. And there were only a hand, that was actually one of the predominant topics of the early episodes was talking with people about when they decided to become a public advocate for their psychedelic use. Because for many people, including many friends I still have, it's quote, career suicide, or at least it was, where if you're working at like a law firm, or like, for example, I was a high school teacher, I couldn't publicly speak about my psychedelic experiences because I had a role in my community that did not understand and did not value those experiences at that time. It's starting to change very quickly, but I think the pandemic changed a lot of things for a lot of people and for myself included, it changed a lot of things in my life. I lost my teaching job, uh, my apartment got sold, so I had to move out. And all of a sudden I found myself in this state of upheaval and it sort of felt like this perfect time to say just, you know what? If I don't do this now and I don't stand on the hill that I'm going to die on and speak about my advocacy and my involvement with mushrooms and with psychedelics and their place in my life, I'm never going to do it. And it felt like a really good time to get in. Yeah, the story sounds familiar, man. It's about this, about the same as me. So I got to ask because I'm relating to your story a lot. And frankly, I, I still haven't totally come out to the to everybody around me, um, you know, and so I'm just just curious, uh, was it just that culmination of things? Plus, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you posted that reel and got good feedback that you were like, yes, this is what I want to do. Or like, what really pushed you over the edge was yeah, so it was definitely the overwhelming and immediate response to that particular type of content. And what I noticed with satire specifically is as I was doing more of it, I noticed that it can frame these very difficult conversations and tense societal 
challenges, it can frame them in a way where it makes them more approachable, in my opinion. And as an example of that, like I talk a lot and a lot of the content in the reels has to do with appropriation, cultural appropriation, right? And this idea that, okay, these ancestral medicines, entheogens, like mushrooms, entheogen is a God containing plant, I believe is the definition of it, right? But uh, what falls under that canopy would be things like ayahuasca, ibogaine, mushrooms, peyote, things like that. And these are substances and plants and medicines that are very important to a lot of indigenous cultures. And they're seen as a form of intellectual property and as a spiritual tradition. So now that the mainstream in the United States, if you will, has started to express a lot of interest in these substances, and you have these companies coming in and trying to patent them and trying to you know, create these barriers around them, Obviously, that's very upsetting to a lot of people. And I just noticed this sentiment that is prevalent across the community. And if you tap in with this emergent psychedelic community, you connect with psychedelic societies or these conferences, you'll see that this is a conversation that comes up a lot about cultural appropriation, about the theft and the co-opting of indigenous intellectual property and traditions. And when you're yelling at each other, which happens a lot, people yelling at each other and getting into vehement debates, it's not always as constructive as approaching it with a lens of humor and satire, in my opinion. So after I made that first reel, calling out these sort of white-owned foreign retreat centers, which I've been to, and I've you know met people who have worked there in a therapist capacity or like as a, a volunteer or whatever, there's this underlying ethos of, of racism. There's this underlying ethos of colonialism. And these are conversations that essentially I just tuned into and then figured out a way that I could repackage them in a way that makes it a little bit more approachable because there's enough, there's not enough, actually, there's a lot of conversations. There's always room for more that are very serious and that are very difficult to read and very triggering for a lot of people. But something about satire and humor can sort of package a lot of those difficult conversations into a more accessible framework, which is sort of the optics that I'm approaching it with. Yeah. And, and I guess just to, to illustrate that folks, we're going to play a, a reel that is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, it's not your freshest one. Like it, you've posted a lot since then. And that's what I love about your page. You constantly got content coming out, but this is one of my favorite reels that I think uh, puts a thumb on what you just mentioned. So I'm going to play it for our audience. Uh, we don't have sound. Uh, I'll edit this little stumble out here. Let me get the sound oh, going. No worries. I see the, the little icon in the bottom right corner. There we go. Me? Whoops. I'm going to restart that though. No problem. Okay. Here is the reel that I wanted to show our audience. I love this thing, Dennis. I'm a psychedelic industry millionaire and I've got my shit trading publicly on the NASDAQ, even though we haven't done so hot this year or the last year. I'm still personally sitting on fat stacks as part of an equity deal in the reverse takeover we did with a Canadian mining company. Some of you out there might be asking yourselves how a few people like me are able to procure generational wealth out of an industry built around substances that are technically still illegal in most jurisdictions and which are scheduled alongside a variety of other substances that have landed millions of people in jail, mostly BIPOC community members with draconian multi-year sentences. And the answer is simple. The DEA 
day doesn't see suits, and we all play golf together. If you ask me why I support the medicalized and tightly regulated model of psychedelics, well, low-key, that's because that's the only way that psychedelics are ever going to be truly integrated into society at large and accessible on a broad scale for the majority of the public. And also, that's where the money is. Maybe one day, we as a society will stop practicing psychedelic exceptionalism and will stop criminalizing people for personal use and possession of mind-altering molecules. But my position is that normalization of psychedelics and widespread societal interest in them is a damn good place to start. So if you're one of those fuck-the-system, rage-against-the-machine types, just know that Tom Morello lives in a mansion in Malibu. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. The reason I love that reel is, uh, it, like I said, it touched on a lot of the things that you were just talking about. Um, namely, uh, I like in that reel, you're like, how, how you're probably wondering how can a few individuals like myself, uh, sell something that's technically a schedule one substance. Like I, and I just love, I, I love everything about it. And, um, if you, if you can't tell, I'm seeing a lot of similarities between your take on this and the cannabis industry, which is that, you know, a few people get involved, they make billions of dollars and they have this backwards ass logic as to why they deserve that position. Um, I just got to say, thank you for making brilliant content like that. It's, it's awesome. Dude, it's my pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. And my rule of thumb with it is if I can get a belly laugh out of myself and I can be as accurate as possible by doing my homework and research, then I'm going to make some content around it. And I'm also very thankful that the one minute reel has become so popular as a format of media because I used to do YouTube. I have a YouTube channel with my wife and it's significantly more time intensive to make 15 minute videos, right? And to have a certain production quality that you want to go for. So once the one minute reels started catching on, I was very thankful because I'm able to shoot from the hip a little bit and produce a reel basically every day, which would have been you know far more difficult if I was trying to make content that was 15 or 20 times longer. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just, I mean, you kind of prefaced it and that's why I brought up the reel, but I want to hear your take. Like, how did you start to notice that uh, the movement was kind of being hijacked? I think a big Part of it was going to some of these conferences and I've been invited to a number of them. And it's kind of a funny situation I find myself in now where I've been essentially critiquing and poking fun at these larger entities and corporate entities and people like that. And it's actually endearing me to them and I'm getting more invitations. And like an example of that, I had been doing satire for a while and kind of calling out some of these companies. And then I got invited by a very prominent media platform in the space to publish on their platform and to write an article for them, essentially saying, hey, everybody in the space is taking themselves too seriously. It's my opinion. Like there's not enough comedic release. There's a comedic relief. And so by way of that, I ended up getting contacted by the reps and you know executives from some very large companies that weren't on my radar or vice versa. I wasn't on their radar before. And so it, through those sort of conversations and then getting invited to these conferences, and I've been out to a big one in Las Vegas last year. I've been out to one in LA, one in the Bay Area. I just went out to New York City. And I don't think people who are not at these spaces 
quite frankly, understand how developed this industry is already. You know, there's a lot of pushback against the suits coming in, but like the fact is they're already here. The suits are already here. There's already major investment that's going in. There's already companies that have all of their product pipeline and their executive management team and the capital and the resources in place ready to go. And now that the legislation is being written and there's things happening on that front actively, like Prop One, Prop 122 in Colorado, which is a huge vote that's coming up. And Oregon is popping off with their legal, legal psilocybin industry this coming year. Like I've met people at these conferences who already have these products. They have the branding, you know, things you wouldn't even believe. They've got psilocybin and DMT vape pens, and they've got lion's mane hot sauce, and they've got just all kinds of products, and they're already ready to go. So I think that at this point, the question is, is it possible to fight against that? Is it possible to take them on? Because, of course, you know, everybody from the cannabis industry is kind of saying what's happened with the corporatization of that space. And, you know, a lot of those same people are moving over into the psychedelic space now. So, you know, my, my lens that I quickly moved into is just, okay, if I can't fight against them, maybe humor wins. Maybe, you know, I don't have to make a product to compete with them. I'm going to make my own platform and, and, you know, it's independent too right now. So I've learned that there's a number of platforms, if you will, where you kind of have to stick to a certain narrative or else you don't get to play at a high level. And that's a fact. And that's something that I've learned. So I've got this independent platform now, like, but at the same time, you know, by critiquing these people without being overtly angry at them, a lot of them listen, you know, I've had people from these large companies that I don't want to name drop, but like, you know, very established companies who are reaching out to me and saying they're a huge fan of what I'm doing. And so therefore I see potential here to like essentially just be a social observer, a social commentator who doesn't necessarily have skin in the product game. You know, I'm not trying to compete growing mushrooms or, you know, synthesizing a novel drug with these people, but I can create something that kind of shows how naked the emperor is, if you will. And that's where I'm stacking my chips. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I am definitely looking forward to what some of these companies uh, can come up with, frankly, with psilocybin, with uh, synthetic cannabinoids, um, you know, you name it. I'm all for um, these big companies like uh, get, getting in and, and establishing, establishing themselves. I'm curious, like, what do you have any take on uh, any sort of protections that you think, like, do you think there are any protections that would... Um, uh, kind of safeguard the consumers from the corporatization of uh, like the psychedelic industry. And I guess just to give you like a few from the cannabis industry that maybe apply, um, you know, one, if you're going to legalize psychedelics or be whatever, then people should be able to grow it at home, cultivate at home. You know, that, that is a definite, and surefire safeguard from corporatization because you give the people the power to do it themselves like you did it as as you grew up so there's one um, another one that you may be aware of is like licensing structures come up with a fair licensing structure that, that doesn't have a bunch of barriers to entry pay to play um, i feel like those two proposals probably could apply to the psychedelic industry but i'm just curious do you even have a take on that type of topic. It seems like you do, but I just wanted to ask, like, what is your take on it? 
it's really tough to project into that space because there's so many different stakeholders. But what I've noticed from interviewing people on both sides and from being involved in the space for a couple of years is that this is an opinion. Let me preface it with that. I've noticed that you can't stop people from growing them at home. First off, people have been doing it forever. The black market will not go away. People will continue to grow, okay, and access other substances. And as an example of that, like these substances have been highly illegal and scheduled for years. And if you go to the right places, like if you go to San Francisco and you hang around a little bit, if you go to some of these conferences and you hang out, you're going to be able to find them. Okay. So that's one thing right there. And I don't really think that there's an overwhelming pressing target on a lot of people's backs who are doing for personal consumption and growth, right? I think where a lot of this gray area and sort of the tension start to mount is when you start getting into thinking about competing as a legal vendor and competing in the market. And I personally, from what I've observed, not that I necessarily agree or disagree with this, just what I've observed, I don't think there's going to be any way that we can push back in a meaningful capacity against the powers that be. And I say that because the overwhelming amount of capital connections, political resources, the infrastructure, et cetera, is so dialed in. And you're bringing people over from extremely established spaces and industries. And the conference I was just recently at, you know, they've got people representing, you know, nine figure funds plus who are involved, or hedge fund billionaires, people like that. And to me, it's like when you have all of that organizing capacity, potential experience, et cetera, it just seems like a moot point at a certain level to try to fight back against that machine. Then the question becomes, how can I coexist or continue to do what I'm doing within it? And I think that the black market will always exist. I think that people will always be able to produce or procure their own substances if they want to, and if they wanna connect with people who can mentor them. And as far as competing in a legal market, I would compare it almost to like, if you were to sell food or wanna open a restaurant, like no one's gonna stop you from doing whatever you want in your home. But if you start to you know, put out signs and advertise online that you're running a restaurant, you're probably gonna get approached by you know, the regulatory or the licensing committee of a city or you know, these FDA authorities or whatnot. And again, I don't agree or disagree with the way it's rolling out, it's more of, I see my role as a social commentator and as an observer. And what I've observed has led me to believe that the infrastructure in place to roll out this more legal framework for a psychedelics industry is pretty pretty bulletproof and it's gonna be very difficult to organize against. So just do your own thing is my advice to people. You know, just start growing mushrooms in your house. There's plenty of tutorials out there. It's not hard to get spores. And I don't think anyone's going to come kicking down your door. Now, if you want to start selling pounds, that might be a different story. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, honestly, I completely agree with you. And another way of putting it, uh, let me know if you agree with this analogy, but I think that what you're saying is this with the food supply might be inevitable for well, the cannabis industry, the psychedelic industry, and by that I mean a few companies will probably own most brands. Is that a fair analogy uh, to use what, what you're saying is inevitable? A hundred percent. And of course, take my opinions with a grain of salt. And, you know, I, I am very active with underground communities too and with people. And I have actively 
you know, lobbied against or pushed back against this sort of corporatization. But the more I get invited into these spaces, the more I see how defined and at the ready they are and how they have a lot of experience doing it. So I think that what you just showed is a fair representation of where we may be headed. Of course, no one can say with 100% certainty, but I'll give you another example. I've seen a number of underground communities and people who are actively lobbying against this corporatization of psychedelics. I've seen them have falling outs, you know, be, you know, people who are on the same side who are fragmenting. And my challenge there is like, if you guys can't even get along as these underground activists trying to mount you know, put pressure on corporate campaigns or whatnot. How do you expect to actually effectively push back against these people who understand how to astroturf? They understand how to use the press. They understand yeah. press releases and they have that whole thing on their side, right? And, you know, just one more I'll, I'll mention is like, I had a, a talk with a, a PR agent recently and I love this person dearly and I'm a big fan of their work. And I realized that to, to legitimately get involved with working with this person, it costs quite a bit of money. And I've heard this from other people, you know, in the business and, and entertainment business or in the cannabis business, that you need to have quite literally, you know, $50,000 a year in your budget to retain the services of someone who can get you onto a lot of these platforms. Like if you want to be featured, you want to have your brand featured in Forbes or Rolling Stone or whatever. So you know, when we think about the mainstreaming of psychedelics or cannabis, there's a bottleneck there of who has the resources to be able to, to get platformed, who has the resources to be able to throw a party, you know, that invites a lot of um, a lot of influential people, if you will, in that space, you know, senators and politicians and this and that. So that's sort of the sobering reality of where we at, where we're at right now. And that's where I think the satire and the humor is kind of that's for us, you know, that's for the underground. And when you look at programs like South Park, I mentioned, or the Simpsons, right? Hugely corporate, hugely corporate, hugely profitable. And they make their living off of deconstructing power structures and, you know, uh, taking people down, punching up, you know, punching up against these people. And that's sort of where I've stacked my chips is I'm never going to be a better policy expert than a lot of the people I've met. I'm never going to be a better cultivator than a lot of people I've met, but I can arguably be a better satirist and a better, you know, content producer in this very uh, specific niche that I'm in. I love it, man. I love it. Well, that was, it was really cool. I've been like, so excited to have that conversation with you and, uh, yeah, I like where you, I like where you stand on it, and I have to say that I agree. And of course, I'll just reiterate that both of the both of our opinions were just that. There are opinions, people, so take them for what they're worth. Um, I'm just curious, you know, we've been talking about you know how you got started, how you got into the psychedelic industry, what you've been focusing on, and and everything else. Um, What's currently percolating, man? Like, is it kind of the the same thing? Do you have your eyes on anything new that you'd like to talk about? That like any new angles that you have or anything? What's what's coming up for the Micropreneur Podcast? What's cooking? I'm staying as busy as I can, connecting with as many people as I can. I'm a firm believer in doing things consistently and doing them as well as you can. And that is gonna write the narrative right there. So rather than getting too caught up and like, where am I gonna be next year or whatever? My goal is today, I'm gonna to put out a banger. Today, I'm gonna to be the most authentic, best version of myself 
and my public facing self that I can be. So to that ends, I've got a couple podcasts dialed in this week and I'm headed to Wonderland in Miami, which is a big conference in the psychedelic space next week. Also the type of conference that's uh, drawn a lot of ire from a lot of people saying that these are the pharma companies, these are the VC bros that are throwing this. And I always take things, I approach them with this perspective of, you're gonna get out of it what you put into it. And I think that there's not a lot of communication, unfortunately, happening between these camps and across party lines. And what I mean by that is I've met people who work in executive capacities for some of these large companies, and they are some of the most radical, underground, long-term activist people you can imagine. But that side doesn't get shown of them when they're in press releases you know, the conference circuit and all that. So I'm a firm believer in like going to this conference, of course, there's going to be a lot of people that are referred to as Chad's or Brad's or the, you know, these investor bros. There's also going to be a lot of really awesome people there. And I'm confident about that. So that's one thing I've been doing is just taking up the invitations that I'm given, going to all the parties, you know, going to all the dinners. And I believe that people who want to have some sway or some influence or, you know, even a clear comprehensive understanding of the picture of that's being rolled out, be it the cannabis industry or the psychedelics industry, you got to put yourself in those rooms. And of course, you know, not everybody's going to want to do that. I can totally empathize with and understand why somebody would say, forget that. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be a part of that. Totally understand that. But in my case, like I want to go sit down face to face with some of these people. I want to hear what they're about. I want to learn about them. And the more that I meet these people, the more I realize that a lot of these things that are happening, both in the psychedelics industry, the cannabis space, but in society in general, they're a lot more nuanced and a lot more gray area than people make it to make it out to be. You know, there's the common way of approaching a lot of things is like it's a black and it's a white thing either you're a corporate entity and you're trying to take over this industry or you know you're fighting against them and i think there's a lot of people that are somewhere in the middle there who are saying okay like i'm on this ship too you know i'm i'm a passenger so like why can't i sit down and talk with some of these people in the front seat and figure out you know what their motivations are and what's driving them so that's sort of where i'm at right now is I'm getting some invitations that are really unique opportunities to work with some more established brands and players in the space. And I'm pursuing everything. And, you know, I'll, I'll engage people in the DMS, you know, and I'll, I'll pretty much answer everything uh, to the best of my ability, you know, but to, to, for, to loop back to answer your question, I, I'm really working on building out a satire platform, right? I have a lot of content that I've been doing, but as you've noticed, it's pretty much just me. And I'd really like to find a team of people who wanted to work together and create something more like The Onion, more like, you know, where there's different contributors, uh, maybe a portfolio of podcasts. Example, you know, there's probably three to four podcasts I'd love to do right now. One of them is a cannabis podcast. I've met a lot of people from the cannabis industry, you know, who have longstanding reputations there through my work with Mycopreneur and through going to these conferences, but I don't have the time or the bandwidth to do all of these things, right? So the idea there is like, what if we could build more of a platform that functions very much like The Onion or like Vice, if you will, and we use satire as a lens for unpacking a lot of these, a lot of what's happening in our world right now. And I think it's only going to get weirder, you know, thinking about the next election cycle, thinking about when psychedelics are legalized and when you have McKetamine clinics, you know, and uh, Donald J. Trump opens ketamine, Trump branded ketamine clinics. Like 
we're at the point where none of these things are beyond the scope of possibility and it's perfect for satire. So that's my pitch. So anyone listening, like if you want to get involved, you know, I'm just one person. I'm not like this, you know, oligarch juggernaut business platform. Like I'm just one person and I really want to build out what I have and be able to, you know, deconstruct a lot of these power structures and have a good time doing it. Yeah, you heard it, folks. Reach out, reach out. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the day where I can get a couple of mushrooms. I'm just joking. I like I like your McKetamine joke. That was funny. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious. You you know, you mentioned that obviously you encounter people in the cannabis industry and everything else. Um, got a couple seemingly unrelated questions, but they're easy ones, so don't don't sweat it. Um, yeah, what's your drug drug of choice? You like smoking cannabis every now and then? Is are you just a mushroom guy? What what? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a regular, I'm an everyday cannabis consumer and I have been for many years too. So that's one thing I always want to mention to people is like, I've been a daily cannabis consumer with very few breaks for about 17 years now. And, you know, I was living in California during the whole Prop 215 and legalization and all this, but it never even occurred to me to get involved with the industry. It was not on my radar. It was not something that I feel my family and friends would have supported. So, you know, uh, it's just kind of funny now that having done the mushroom podcast and Mycopreneur, I'm starting to get connected to a lot of the cannabis industry because, you know, so many people are moving over and, and this and that and the other. So, yeah, I absolutely love it. But as I got older, I'm 33 now, I started smoking less and eating edibles more. So I eat edibles every day with very few breaks. And it's usually in the PM because I'm also, I'm quite an introverted stoner. And that, you know, for me, it's strange because weed is a social drug for so many people. And it used to be for me, but at some point in my mid twenties, I started getting extreme social anxiety and paranoia, even off of small amounts of cannabis. And it would be the thing where I had normalized it. So I would smoke, but then I'd have to leave the party or I'd have to like go home. So I figured out later, you know, in my golden years of my, you know, early to mid thirties that I could continue to enjoy cannabis, but that it, its role had changed in my life. And it was no longer a social party drug. It was far more of an intro, introspective sort of stay in your, in your studio and get work done and work on creative projects. And then the last bit I'll mention there is I really like with the content production and the podcast to do like the majority of it uh, sober. So like I'll record the podcast sober and then I'll edit it stoned. And I feel like it makes me my own editor because you're like approaching things with a different lens. And like, if I had gotten high before this podcast, I would have a much more difficult time, I think with recall and with like, I would just, you know, be too concerned about how I'm representing myself or whatever. But uh, when, I, when I go back and I, I stoned later and I listen to things, it's like having your own editor there. And mushrooms too. Mushrooms are a huge part of my life. I've, I've become more of an infrequent consumer. You know, I think everybody who turns into a psychonaut, a lot of people have this propensity to think more is better and you want to do it as much as possible. But like, as I got older and I started shifting into more of a role of having responsibilities, like work, my business, my wife, my house, things like this, like I have to pick my spots now. And, you know, so I'm very grateful for that. And I'm still a frequent flyer, but I'll space them out so that, you know, they're a little more meaningful and I have a little bit more time to unpack what I'm, what I've experienced and to have a, a clear sense of why I'm doing this. Right. Like, why am I doing this? Am I doing, you know, and to that end, I've also started leveling down the doses. You know, I used to be very infatuated with macro doses and I'm still infatuated with them, but I find that 
smaller doses can really achieve a lot of the same objectives of why I want to have a psychedelic experience in the first place. And a lot of that is a very meditative, creative approach and being able to let the contents of my mind settle, if you will, and let the important aspects of what I need to be doing emerge to the forefront and, and learning how to sort of manage this portfolio of experiences that is our life. So that's very much how I use psychedelics now. And it's also typically in a very private, you know, individual setting where I'm by myself and I'm listening to music and I'm in a more meditative state. Um, but of course, I also like low doses at concerts. I saw the Flaming Lips on two grams, and it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Been I've seen Radiohead on mushrooms. I've seen the Kronos Quartet. You know, tons of tons of great artists. Where I find this uh, sense of amplification of the experience by having the right dose. Yeah. So you kind of already answered my my next question through your kind of addendum there. Um, I was going to ask you. Like I told you before, I asked these two questions. They may be seemingly unrelated. So here's the seemingly unrelated question uh, that you seem to have kind of already answered, but I want to give you a chance if you had anything else to add. Um, you seem very confident, but you also seem very humble. And I just wanted to ask you, how'd you get there? And do you have any wisdom you can impart on uh, myself or my audience? I mean, I don't know how confident I am other than being I know a good, that's a tough question. Yeah. I know it's a tough question. No, I, what, I, what I would answer to that is that I think time is a big is a big justifier there where if you've been involved with something for a long time, you've seen behavior patterns in yourself and in other people, and it makes things easier to recognize. And I've noticed a number of people that are quote, leaders in the psychedelic space or people who are very public facing. And I've talked to them and they're like, oh, I had my first trip in 2019. And now they're trying to be involved in writing legislation. And that type of stuff to me is a little bit hubristic. I think that, you know, you have to do your due diligence. And a lot of that is your personal work, devoting yourself. And, and another bit I'd mentioned there is like, really surrendering, surrendering yourself to the cause and saying, all right, I'm going to use my life to do this. You know, this isn't a uh, a trend for me. This is a lifestyle. This is something that I've been involved with for a long time and have been very, you know, I've sacrificed a lot in terms of my own life to go down this route. You know, when a lot of people doubted me and a lot of people question your, you know, what are you doing? You're, you know, you should grow out of that. You should just grow up. You don't need that. And I feel kind of vindicated now that it's like been 10 years of me facing that kind of scrutiny and being typecast as this goofball, you know, oddball outside of the norm. And now all of a sudden, that conversation and the experiences that I've been involved with for much of my adult life, they're gravitating towards the norm or vice versa, the norm is gravitating there. So that's one bit as I would say time, you know, if you if you see someone who's been doing what they're doing for a decade or longer, like they're probably going to have a decent uh, idea or a decent understanding of some of the the best practices to approach things with. So that's one. The second component that I'd I'd say there is connect with as many people as possible. And this is where I see a lot of challenges for people. And you know that obviously that's easier for an extrovert. I'm pretty extroverted, right? But what I've noticed is some of these huge opportunities that have come for me in the last year have come from people that I never expected. It's you know it didn't come from these people that I'm like. Um, I'm romanticizing as being, oh, this person's the CEO or the CFO of this company, or this person is this highly visible influencer. 
you know, it, a lot of times it's come from somebody you never expected who's been quietly following you and quietly tapping in with, in with you. And then you realize like, oh, they're the you know director of this massive organization in the space. They just don't publicly advertise that. So th- that is sort of my, you know, do things not because of who people are, do things because you want to connect with people. And like, you know, the, the more you do that work, the more you connect with people that are quote, not worth your time, if you will. I think that's where the real gains come. And that's something that I'm very, aston- very much a staunch advocate for is just being as diplomatic as possible, giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I've seen so many people in this space have a very idealized version of what they think should happen. And then it creates these barriers between them and other people. But the reality is that all of us are changing all the time. So you could have people that, you know, a year ago, you disagreed with everything they said, and then something in their life happened and they've changed. And now they've got a totally different understanding, right? So I think that's what we need to see at large in the world, like thinking about the political sphere, thinking about, you know, the the separation between so many of us is like, we just need to be willing to have conversations with people across party lines and to keep an open mind about things, you know, and and at the same time, you have to protect yourself. So it's a, you know, slippery slope, but my, my approach to things is give everyone the benefit of the doubt, make time for as many people as possible. And then, you know, if you give someone the time of day and they start trying to clap back at you or whatever, you just move on and you don't make it a big deal. That's the other thing. You know, I think so a lot of it was personal maturity, if you will, and like maturing through life through realizing like maybe 10 years ago, I would have, you know, got into a, a bitter argument with this person. But now I'm just like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to respond. You know, that's not going to phase me. So yeah, you know, and, and even still I'm learning. Like I've, I don't think I've ever done a podcast before. I've recorded a ton. I've got more on the docket, you know, so I'm learning about myself just by doing this podcast right here. So just take all the opportunities, have an open mind and be super cool to people, not because you want something out of them, just because it's the right thing to do, to be a cool person to people. Man, you're dropping some, some real wisdom here on this podcast. And uh, I appreciate it. I knew that the that this would happen. Um, I was looking forward to this happening. Um, <laughs> so um, just a few easy questions as we start to close out. I tuned into one of your live streams one time, man, and you're playing the guitar. How long have you been doing that? Awesome. Yeah, I've been doing that for probably as long as I've been a psychonaut. I think there was a correlation or a causation there. So about 17 years now, I think I really got into to cannabis and psychedelics around 17. And I got more serious about playing music then. And I grew up taking piano lessons. So I still play piano. I've played in bands and have always had a recording studio in some capacity. And it's something I want to get back into. So, you know, I used to chase the dream of touring and being on a label and all that. And I got to do some cool stuff in college. You know, I played overseas in Europe and I played in a band that was really awesome for the time in San Francisco. We used to sell out shows in the Bay Area called Ghost Town Refugees. Kind of a fun, you know, college, it got me through college that uh, being involved in that band and studying media, there was overlap there. I was able to kind of use the band as a smokescreen for my media classes and like be able to, you know, oh, this project, I'm going to organize a concert, which, which I was going to do anyways, but now I'm going to get a grade because it somehow fits <laughs> right. into my media program. Right. So, yeah. Um, but I, part of why I like doing that is because I've noticed with live streams and specifically with the psychedelic community, it's become so contentious because there's so many disagreements, so many misunderstandings, and there's a lot of high stakes right now. You know, I just mentioned there's a high stakes vote coming up in Colorado, uh, I believe on November 8th, and it has split the psychedelic community and a lot of people right in half. You know, it's, it's, 
and feel free to look more into that because I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I've seen the impact that the politicization and the mainstreaming of psychedelics is happening. And I've seen a lot of live streams where people are just very serious about what they're doing. So part of my rebuttal to that is like, I'm just going to go on, I'm going to play some songs. I'm going to say what's up to people. Like this is a non-transactional, very low pressure, sort of a hangout. People can ask me questions. You know, people can tap in. If someone requests to go live, if I know them, I usually go, you know, live with them. And it's a format that I think I just think that more people should approach this space with an air of incredulity and with an air of humor and, and being willing to have a good laugh as opposed to making everything so serious all the time. Because we live in a world where everybody is so serious and so frustrated all the time. And, and there's a lot of good reasons for why people are frustrated and why people are serious, but we can also scale back, you know, even in the most intense films or, or dramas, there's always, almost always a comedic relief. And I think that that is a very important component of the overall ecosystem. Absolutely. And I got to ask you as a, you, you mentioned comedic relief a lot. Um, and we've of course talked about who you like in satire, but just in general, are you, sounds like maybe you're a pretty big fan of comedy. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And actually I, I steal a lot of the material I do, but I think that as you, hone your artistic craft, you learn how to steal like an artist. You learn how to blindly rip people off while paying homage to them. And that's very important to me that like, I'm essentially, and I don't always want to disclose the source of all of them, but like, you know, for an example, I use a lot of, I borrow a lot from Danny McBride, who some of you may be familiar with from Eastbound and Down from The Righteous Gemstones. He's made a number of incredible films as well. And there's something about this like very pompous alpha male character who's just so ridiculous, but he doesn't <laughs> seem to understand that. That's very resonant. So I think when you're, when you're drawing inspiration, like you, and I've heard my favorite artists say this too, like you want to steal from people, but you want to do it in a way that shows that you respect their craft. You've studied them. You've devoted to them. You're not going for the cheapest, most accessible engagement. Like you have to really pay attention, watch, you know, all the material they've done, watch their interviews, understand where their characters are coming from, and then draw from that. And another example is like, Radiohead. I'm a huge Radiohead fan. I've, you know, they changed my life. And I've talked about that a lot on my podcasts about my early experiences with psilocybin mushrooms, listening to Radiohead and how much it shaped a lot of my thinking at that time. And they have said that they just blindly rip off REM. And what, you know, at first you think, wow, they don't sound anything like REM. And then when you start paying more attention, you're like, wow, early Radiohead sounds a lot like REM. <laughs> they just managed to do it in a very original way. So that would be my other piece of advice to people is like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You have to go find creators, content, entrepreneurs, whatever it is that resonate with you and that you like what they're doing. And then you study them and then you draw little bits from them. And then you study other people. You draw a little bit from Tom Waits. You draw a little bit from the Simpsons creators, right? You draw a little bit from Jim Carrey, uh, and these are all things that I've done to sort of arrive at where I am. And I'm always looking for new creators. So people are always sending me, you know, content. And, and some of it, I'm like, wow, this person only has like 300 followers and they're killing it right now. And I think that's just something that, you know, when you're trying to build an audience, you have to do, you just have to be consistent. You have to, in my opinion, 
you serve your core audience, you know? And for that ends, I've never gone for the trend. I've never tried to, you know, go for this big cash grab where I make very accessible content that a lot of people will understand. I would way rather be creating content for 100 or 200 avid consumers who pay attention and who I can have a relationship with versus 25,000 people that don't know me and that don't understand it. So I think that's something we also need to stop going for these like Hail Mary viral videos with, you know, a million followers. Like those people will leave you just as easy as they found you. And, and to that end, some of the content I make intentionally tries to push buttons because I want to know like, Who's going to drop me? Who's going to stop following me just because I had one take they didn't like? Because I don't want that person in my audience, quite frankly. I'd way rather have a group of people who want to build with me, who want to grow with me, and who understand that I don't know everything, that I'm exploring this, you know, and that, and when you have that sense of confidence and you find that audience, serve that audience. Don't try to go for these, you know, people who will just follow you because you had a trend video and then they'll unfollow you as soon as you say something or do something they disagree with. Wow. Well, this, this, that was particularly powerful for me, but I'm sure that for a lot of our audience, you know, that that's good advice. It definitely resonates with me because there's too often where it's like, you know, not to get into my own examples, but for example, uh, I have, I have had one of the top anti-cannabis, one of the most well-known, let's just say, I don't want to say top, but one of the most well-known people that lobby against the legalization of cannabis and they believe that cannabis should not be legal and people come at me and they're like why would you give somebody like that a platform and i'm like i gave somebody like that a platform because i like having discussions with people i disagree with um and if you're so like if you're not confident enough to be able to hear that perspective well maybe then this show isn't for you you know um if you can't have your beliefs challenged or hear something that's you know particularly different then maybe you know the show isn't for you so I, I resonated with that uh, a lot. So thanks for mentioning it. My pleasure. And it's something I found out sort of the hard way, because I think as a creator, there's this sexiness to getting a big audience, right? And you think you measure yourself against other people, or at least I do. Like, it's almost impossible not to do that, to look at someone and be like, oh man, they've got, you know, a hundred thousand followers and they're doing 2 million podcast downloads. How can I get on that level? And I realized like the only way you're ever going to do that is with time. And if you do it, you know, very quickly, there's no shortcuts, I don't think. And that's just one other, my rant here, I'll end it really quickly. But like, there's so many people who are just trying to market to the lowest common denominator. And you go on TikTok and they're like, use this sound and make a seven second video and you'll build an audience. And my advice, having a media studies degree and having studied this space, having a sole proprietorship, you know, with major international clients, which is something I don't always disclose, but that's sort of my bread and butter gig outside of micropreneurs. Like I produce podcasts, I work on video content for, you know, academic institutions and for major companies and things like that. And like, do not follow that advice of doing you know, sound clips in seven seconds, like do it if you will, but don't make that, don't expect that you're going to build a loyal fan base off of following trends. Like you have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to be, you know, as, as accurate and as um, you have to, you have to put yourself out there, I think. And, and that's a challenging thing to do because the, the consensus majority right now says like, be safe, jump on the trend, you know, do this, you'll gain a thousand followers. But like, to me, 
if you can buy followers, if you can jump on a trend and easily gain 5,000 followers, like that devalues your platform, in my opinion. You, your platform, what gives it value is the audience trust that you have and the authenticity that you bring. So if you can do that day in and day out, you're gonna see results. And I say that after having seen very little outward success by all accounts in the first year of the podcast. And then within the last three to four months, starting to get all kinds of major league invitations and opportunities. And, you know, that, that was not something that's not something that has come from following the crowd, if you will. So, you know, that, that's my two cents on that bit. Yeah. I, if I could put it in a bottle, what you just said is a crowd that is easily gained is also easily lost. Word straight up. Yeah. Well said, dude. Well said, man. It's been, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. I'd love uh, to speak with you again, you know, um, I just wanted to thank you, uh, for again, taking the time to come onto my show. Um, and I really hope that, uh, for folks that haven't heard of you, I'm already convinced. I am pretty goddamn confident that if you're listening now, you're like, I'm going to check out Dennis's work. Um, if you haven't already. So it's my hope that maybe you'll see a few Chilinoyans coming your way. And please reach out. Please say what's up. I love meeting new people. I travel a lot. So like, you know, I'm my in-laws live in Chicago, so I'm out there all the time. So, you know, let's let's figure out a way to, to build together and to grow together. And, you know, I, I'm in a position now where I, I really want to bring more people on board and start building out. And like I've got my website, mycopreneur.com. It's only got a handful of articles and a handful of videos. And I'd love to populate it with content and to, you know, build long-term relationships in sort of like a, a nebulous way with a network of people. And I'm also interested in like moving more into the cannabis media space because, for example, like quite a few cannabis people have come on the Mycopreneur podcast, even though they really have nothing to do with mushrooms or fungi entrepreneurism, because someone recommends them. And I say, yeah, why not? You know, let's let's go. Like, I want to learn about what you're doing for sure. And in that way, I'm, I'm really interested in building out that, you know, space, the platform of Mycopreneur. So get in touch. And it's been an absolute blast too, Cole. I really appreciate you inviting me. And I'd, I'd love to do this again at your convenience anytime. Absolutely. Well, that means a lot. Well, so folks, if you enjoyed what you heard today, definitely give Dennis a follow. Like I said, we'll have the social media handles in the podcast description. So check that out. It's the Mycopreneur podcast. You can basically find it anywhere. Podcasts are streaming, Google it, or like I say, the links will be in the podcast description, whatever is easiest for you. Um, so Dennis, uh, we'll look forward to the next time, uh, that we chat and, uh, until then stay well. Absolutely. You as well, my friend, and we'll follow up soon. So thank you everybody for listening. Take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Have a great day. See you guys.